Hello everyone, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. Episode 50, Introducing Thucydides, with Professor James Rom. Well here we are, about to get underway making our way towards the great conflict of the Greek world in the Classical Age, the Peloponnesian War. Though before we get started with the introduction to this episode, I want to share a couple of milestones for the show. Firstly, last week the show just sailed past 100,000 total downloads, and secondly, we have reached the 50th series episode. I must say I am blown away by how far the series has come from my cautious foray into the world of historical podcasting nearly two years ago. Though, as I have discovered, remaining consistent and putting as much effort into the scripts and the series has really paid off. Though one of the biggest reasons for the success so far has been because of all of you tuning into the series. This is also one of the most satisfying experiences, as my initial motivation for starting the series was to share my love of ancient Greece and make it accessible for many others. So seeing this being realised is extremely humbling, and I greatly appreciate everyone for supporting the show. I find it very fitting that with this 50th episode, we are now transitioning into a new phase of Greek history, a point that is officially seen where the Archaic Age ends and the Classical Age starts. It's also where we say goodbye to Herodotus as our main foundational source, and welcome in Thucydides. While it is also a major transitional event in the Greek world coming away from the Persian invasions, with all of the political and diplomatic developments that would occur leading to conflict within the Greek world. Though before picking back up the narrative, I wanted to provide an introduction to this period we'll be spending quite some time on. To do this, I've invited Professor James Rom on the show to give us an introduction to Thucydides and the subject of his history, the Peloponnesian War. I had decided to reach out to Professor Rom as I'd recently come across a book he was involved in titled The Greek Histories, which came out last year. This work is focused on providing an introduction to a number of ancient Greek writers, of who Thucydides was one, so I felt this was perfect timing given where we are currently in the series. James Rom is an author, reviewer, and the James H. Ottaway Jr. Professor of Classics at Bard College in Annadale, New York. He specialises in ancient Greek and Roman culture and civilization. His reviews and essays have appeared in the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal, the London Review of Books, the Daily Beast, and other venues. He has held the Guggenheim Fellowship 1999-2000, the Berkland Fellowship at the Dorothy and Lewis B. Cullum Center for Writers and Scholars at the New York Public Library 2010-11, and the Biograph Fellowship at the Leon Levy Center of the City University of New York 2014-15. Professor Rom is also the author and editor of a number of books, including, but not limited to, The Sacred Band, Ghosts on the Throne, The Greek Histories, The How-To and Ancient Guide series of books, and the landmark Arian, The Campaigns of Alexander the Great. I've provided links to all of Professor Rom's books on the episode page of the website. Anyway, enough from me here now, let's get on with the episode. Once again, just a note on the interview, it was done across Zoom, and there were a couple of buffering issues in our connection that may be noticeable, but I was able to edit them enough so as not to be too distracting. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode, and I now present you Introducing Thucydides with Professor James Rom. All right, thank you, uh, Professor Rom, for coming on the show to uh, help give us an introduction to Thucydides and his subject of the Peloponnesian War. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. Greatly appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us today. In the show so far, uh, we've spent the best part of last year uh, moving our th way through the Greek and Persian Wars. Um, and then recently in the series, we took a bit of a digression where we looked at the wider Greek world, focusing on uh, the Greek periphery, where we looked at um, Sicily, Thrace, Macedon, and um, Anatolia, just to give us a bit of a context of those areas as we move forward into the classical period as they become um, more important. Um, now that we've finished our look around these areas, we're now ready to move on into the narrative, which will see us move into or leading up to the Peloponnesian War. Uh, this also sees us transitioning from Herodotus um, to Thucydides as one of our foundational sources, um, as he would write the most complete work, um, if it wasn't uh, fully finished, though, of the Peloponnesian War. But before we continue with the narrative, I wanted to spend an episode building a basic understanding of Thucydides and the period he wrote about. Uh, that brings us to today's episode. Now, I recently came across a fairly new book that you were involved in, Professor Rom, um, for Greek histories, which takes a look at some of the foundational ancient historians, with Thucydides being one of them. This prompted me to reach out to yourself to see if you'd be interested in coming on today's uh, show to focus on introducing Thucydides to us. And um, 
like I said, I'm greatly uh, appreciative that uh, you've agreed to give us some of your time today. Well, as I say, it's a pleasure to be here. Your your podcast has many fans, and uh, um, it's great to see people like yourself reaching out to a wide audience, making these subjects that may seem obscure or hard to approach uh, much more accessible. Yes, and um, I I think it's very important too, especially people like myself who are. I guess got limited uh, academic training, but uh, I've got a, a, a deep passion for Greek history to be able to connect with um, academics like yourself, making, I guess, it more accessible to uh, everyday people to, to uh, get a bit more depth with these subjects as well. And it couldn't be more appropriate to do this kind of work with Thucydides because Thucydides really was writing for us today probably more than any other ancient Greek writer, he was aware that he was addressing posterity, not just his contemporaries, and that the things he was writing about would recur in future times. Because as he says, human nature is constant. It stays the same over time. So he foresaw that we would be dealing with the same issues and the same problems millennia after his time. Yeah, and he does say that... um that he intended this to be a possession for all time as well um, for exactly those points that you bring up. Um, So I thought we, before we get stuck into who Thucydides was, um, I thought we could uh, get a bit of an idea of your background and perhaps could you share with us what led to your interest in the ancient world and it becoming a large part of your life? Simply great teachers in high school and college Some of the best teachers I had were Hellenists, especially one fellow at Yale, John Harrington, who, um, a marvelous man who really lived the Greek classics, internalized them, uh, even to the point where he had carved his own rhapsode staff and he would hold it aloft as he recited Homer in the original Greek. And when I saw him doing that, I said, well, I want to learn Greek too. And uh, that launched me on a classics major, and then I went on to a PhD. So I guess in more current times, um, what has been your your main focus in the ancient Greek world? I've Now, I've read a number of your books, and it appears that it does sort of lay around the 4th century um, BC. That's right. I um, started publishing for a general readership back in 2008 with the landmark Arian, the campaigns of Alexander the Great. So I edited the history of Arian, the description of Alexander's campaign in Asia. And I've been just fascinated by the fourth century ever since. The upheavals in the Mediterranean world were just astonishing. The transition from a city-state culture with three recognized city-states as superpowers to a global Macedonian empire in which those three cities had become inconsequential in terms of their ability to project power, uh, all in the space of about 50 or 60 years. So it's really an astonishing time. Yes, yes. And I'm, I definitely envisage myself um, reaching out to you once we sort of approach those areas in the series as well, as you've got a, uh, a an obvious uh, wealth of knowledge in those those topics as well. Um, are you still performing a, a teaching role in academia as well? Yes, I teach at Bard College, yep. which is a small liberal arts college in the Hudson Valley of New York State. There's about 2,000 students at the college, and Classics is extremely fortunate because we're able to field a full department and a, a full slate of courses even though we have only a handful of students. Yeah. So uh, I'm one of the really lucky people at academia. I get to teach small classes of highly motivated students. And is that a, a general focus on the ancient world or is there particular specialities that you tend to be drawn towards? I do language, history, literature, whatever the needs of the curriculum call for. Yep. That sounds good. I'm sure it'd be very interesting courses too. 
All right. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> All right. So I guess now that we've got a bit of an introduction to yourself and uh, your background, um, let's switch to another historian and our focus of today's episode, Thucydides. And we'll be following along with him for quite some time in this series as we move forward. Um, I envisage that the way that my episodes tend to go, I focus on a topic and they somehow balloon out to three episodes on one particular thing, but um, everyone seems to be fine with that. So I'll continue doing what I'm doing. Um, but I thought, could you give us a bit of a, a rundown of who Thucydides was as a man? So he was an Athenian. He was um, a member of a wealthy family. His family had uh, mining interests in the north of Greece. Um, and actually, his father seems to have been Thracian or have had Thracian roots. He was... Um, a military man, as many wealthy aristocrats were in 5th century Athens. It was part of their upbringing and their education to be trained to be military leaders when the time came. And so he served as a general in the Peloponnesian War, the war against Sparta, up until the year 424 BC, about seven years into the war. Thereafter, he was exiled from Athens because he failed to hold a key city at a time when he was responsible for holding it and wrote his history in the um, period of exile after 424, when he was sort of a free-ranging man without a country, uh, able to talk to Greeks from both sides of the fence in other parts of Greece. And... So Thucydides didn't write his history of the Peloponnesian War to talk about himself. Um, so how are we able to draw a picture of who he was as a, as a man? Are we able to turn to his accounts or do we get an idea from other historians? We really have no other records about his life other than the few scraps of information that he, he reveals in his history. So, for example, he tells us that he got the plague when the plague struck Athens about 430 BC. Um, he tells us that he failed to hold the city of Amphipolis in 424 when he was matched against a Spartan general named Brasidas. And he tells us that he traveled through Greece widely in the period after that. We don't know when he died. Um, he lived at least until the end of the war, 404 BC, because he knows that Athens lost the war. But um, as to how much longer he lived or when he died, it's, it's very unclear. Most people assume he died around 400 BC, which would mean he was maybe 55 or 60 years old. Yeah, I guess from his histories, much of the information comes from, he refers to himself in the third person, especially around, I guess, the, the period uh, around Amphipolis as well. So That's um, right. Yeah. Which was a normal practice for Greek authors. It, uh, it it would be uh, unusual if he had used the first person. Yeah, he, he basically, again, he's not looking to talk about himself, but uh, about the period itself instead. All right, so I guess we've got a bit of a picture of who Thucydides was. Should we move on to uh, a bit of a picture of the actual topic of his histories, the Peloponnesian War? Now, he didn't refer to it as the Peloponnesian War. That's what I guess we do today. But... Um, Perhaps could we get a bit of an outline of what the Peloponnesian War was and I guess a general um, survey of, of how it would um, unfold and some perhaps some, we'll look at some key events or, um, that took place during it. Sure. Peloponnesian because we tend to look at things from an Athenian point of view. So it was the war against the Peloponnesians, that is the cities of the big peninsula in the south of Greece, dominated by Sparta. Sparta had more or less controlled the Peloponnese for a couple of centuries. Most of the cities there were allied with it and had to fight on its side when it was uh, when it went into battle. And um, that power block had been the superpower of Greece for all of its history since the Archaic Age. Then along comes Athens in the 5th century BC and forms 
what we now call the Athenian Empire, the, the Athenians called it the Delian League, a coalition of naval states or island states throughout the Aegean with which it traded and received tribute money and formed into a kind of a democratic alliance. And that power block with its naval power was a deep threat to Spartan interests and the two cities inevitably came into conflict in the 430s BC. Thucydides starts his history at the point where the conflict has become so intense that there, the treaty between the two power blocks, which was meant to last for 30 years, but had only gone 14, is considered to be, if not broken, in serious danger of being broken. And he spends his whole first book, first of his eight books, uh, taking you through the diplomatic calculations and the, the council meetings at which war was resolved on. It was a Spartan decision to go to war. It was not the Athenian decision, but Athens had refused to give in to Spartan demands, which would have prevented war. So in a sense, it was a kind of a mutual escalation. Yeah. And that sort of, I guess, um, we move into a period that's, I guess, known as the first Peloponnesian War as well. Well, so, yeah, turning back the clock yeah. to the 450s BC, the first period in which Athens and Sparta came into direct conflict. It's often called the First Peloponnesian War. It was much less of a hot war than the what we call the Peloponnesian War of the 430s, 420s, and 14s. It was a um, more of a cold war, I guess you could say, with fighting by proxy rather than direct confrontation. Yep. And then, um, yeah, like you said, then we'll move towards where, I guess, what's more famously known as the Peloponnesian War would break out and we would move into more of a, a hot war with um, Athens and Sparta and all their allies arrayed against one another. Right. Um, now, I have seen some people tend to view the different elements of the Peloponnesian War as separate conflicts while others uh, see it as one entire uh, conflict that we would call the Peloponnesian War. Um, where do you stand on on this view? Well, I stand with Thucydides, who says that it really was just one continuous war. Uh, there was an interruption of about seven years in the middle, um, four, 421 to 415, six years really, when there was a treaty in force that required both sides to stand down. But all during that time, they were trying to outmaneuver each other and making preparatory steps for the next phase of fighting because nothing had been resolved. So there was a, a, a lull, but it was really one continuous conflict. Yeah, and um, I think it, there's um, some pieces that people point to to break it up into to different elements, but you've still got the same underlying tensions and, and issues that are at hand that, that lead to conflict. Uh, continuing to break out as well. Yes. It was clear from the beginning that there couldn't be a negotiated solution, that there would have to be a victor and a loser because there was just too much at stake and too many Greek states had lined up on one side or the other, really the entire Greek world. There was um, a sense that uh, neither side could stand down until there was a clear resolution. Yeah, and we also see, I guess, um, it's famously seen as Sparta being the land power and um, Athens being the sea power, but they basically had to work to become more powerful in their, their opponents' um, spheres of uh, where they, were, they, were, they had their strengths as well, which I guess would lead to Sparta's uh, overall victory at the end. Yes. The war was finally decided when Sparta became a naval power. It uh, couldn't be decided when they were avoiding direct confrontation, Sparta operating on land and Athens operating on the sea. There finally had to be a showdown on one element or the other. So Sparta turned itself into a naval power quite remarkably uh, in a very short time 
thanks to the help of the Persians who funded their navy and allowed them to hire experienced rowers. So uh, Persia came into the conflict in its late stages and really tilted the balance towards Sparta. Yeah, and um, I guess early on too, just to sort of bring out a few of the sort of key key areas, um, we saw Sparta's, I guess, dominance as a as an army and their their legend as a, a you know as formidable fighting force was challenged at um, Sphacteria as well um, with the the surrender that had to take place there. That's right. The way in which the truce was established in 421, the lull in the middle of the war, was because Sparta had lost a major confrontation on a small island called Sphacteria, just off the coast of the Peloponnese, and over a hundred Spartans had been taken prisoner and brought back to Athens and kept in a cage. Now a hundred, or it's closer to 200 actually, um, may not sound like a big number, but these are Spartan soldiers who are brought up from age seven as military men and highly trained, highly potent warriors. And Sparta does not have that big a population at this time. So that small a number was actually enough to make it, to, to force it to the negotiating table. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, even though it's a small number, it's uh, quite a large percentage of their uh, elite fighting force. I mean, I mean, they had other other areas, but when you, you're losing um, your, I guess, top of the range soldiers, you you want them back. Attrition's not not on your side in those uh, areas. Exactly. And I guess uh, another huge standout point is um, the uh, Sicilian expedition, uh, where Athens heads over and uh, mounts its campaign over there. Yes. So between four fifteen and four thirteen, right in the middle of the war. During this period of lull, Athens decided to send an expedition to Sicily, which was largely a Greek settled island, and support its allies there against the city of Syracuse, which was threatening uh, the other the autonomy of the other cities on the island. And that quickly evolved into a full-scale invasion and attempt to subdue the entire island for Athens to tilt the balance of power decisively in its favor and make it impossible for Sparta to ever threaten it again. And um, the entire expedition was destroyed after two years of fighting in Sicily. It's one of the hugest debacles in military history. And Thucydides takes us through it in almost agonizing detail in book six and seven of his history. He spends more than a quarter of the surviving text of the history on this one expedition and its fate. And he's deeply, deeply pained by the loss of a, an entire generation, almost, of um, Athenian youth, Athenian and, and allied youth in yeah. Sicily. Yeah. And then um, I guess towards the, well, towards the closing stages of the war, we see um, Anatolia and the Ionian coastline and the Hellespont come into, uh, I guess, a lot of battles are fought there. And that's where we see the, uh, the Spartan Navy starts to uh, rise up. What would, um, how would Sparta develop such a large Navy to be able to, I guess, challenge Athens by the, the close of the, the war? That's an amazing story. It's it's hinted at in book ten, book eight of Thucydides, the last book that he wrote, or the last book that we have anyway, um, when both sides, both Athens and Sparta, begin jockeying to get in, on the good side of the Persians, because the Persians have an enormous amount of money, and they also have an interest in the outcome of this war. Uh, whoever wins, they want to have on their side. And their money enabled Sparta to hire a fleet, to, to build a fleet and to hire rowers and to challenge Athens on the sea, which no one had ever done in the 5th century BC. So 
the war was finally decided, as I say, by Persian cash. Yep. Which is, uh, I guess, interesting in that um, I guess some of the origins of the, the war can be seen at the Greeks trying to build a defence against future Persian incursions into Greece itself only a few generations earlier. Um, That's right. So I guess is some direct results of the actual victory of the Greek and Persian wars would end up coming down the line and leading to, uh, I guess, the, some of the issues that would um, dominate the grievances and why the Peloponnesian War would break out in the first place. Yes, and a lot of the gains the Greeks made during the Persian Wars were reversed as a result of the Peloponnesian War. Sparta, quite uh, without embarrassment, uh, sold the freedom of the Ionians, the Greeks of the Asian coast, uh, to the Persians in exchange for the money to defeat Athens. So the Ionians, who had been liberated by the battles of the Persian Wars, uh, fell once again under Persian subjection, simply because it benefited Sparta to do so. Yeah. And um, just a bit of a side note, um, would this style of war seem to be, well, the, the war that would take place, I guess, during the Peloponnesian War, would that be seen to be the normal state of affairs in Greek history when we look back through their past? Um, I guess the Greek and Persian Wars is a major exception to uh, the fighting that you see in the Peloponnesian War. But um, I guess with even Thucydides, we see hints of um, the larger Greek world conflicts would erupt all throughout the regions. And we also get, uh, like I said, Thucydides, we get the the hints at a, a Lalentine War, which is pointed to some larger conflict, but it's very hard to, I guess, draw out the details behind that one. Would um, the fighting that we do see erupt, would that be the normal state of affair that the Greeks would be contending with through their history? And I guess what would see the, the rise of the hoplites and um, the phalanx develop? Well, the phalanx was already well established by this time, and the Spartans, of course, had perfected it. And the Athenians knew that they could never match the Spartans in a land battle, though they never attempted to do so. Um, it would have been suicidal. Uh, so this was a different kind of conflict in that the Athenians decided not to challenge the Spartans when the Spartans invaded their land. Normally, you'd have to go out and defend your land, but the Athenians had a maritime empire. They were able to import food or whatever they needed without using their own agricultural land, and they willingly sacrificed it. Pericles, their leader, uh, convince them to just stand by, let the Spartans ravage their fields because they could get anything they needed from the sea. So this was the first time in Greek history that that strategy had been tried, uh, you know, what we now would call a Scythian defense, uh, retreating and just letting the enemy have your land. Yeah, I guess, sorry, that was my roundabout way of of getting to that question. But um, yeah, because in the, I guess the earlier... Um periods we often hear of hoplites arranging for battle um, in a, I guess, a predetermined area, a, a flat field, and then the other side will come out and challenge them. But uh, we're not quite seeing that take place this time around. No, there was no set infantry battle in the entire war between Athens and Sparta. There was a set battle that involved Athens on one side and Sparta on the other, but that took place during the truce between 421 and 415, it was a, a, a third-party conflict, essentially, in which Athens was a participant. All right. Well, I think that gives us, I guess, good of a, a general idea of um, the Peloponnesian War itself. Um, like I said, we're going to be delving into it with quite a few many episodes. So um, I hope everyone is going to look forward to that. But um, I thought we'd now turn to, I guess, how some of the ways that Thucydides presents his work. Um, now, he's often described as presenting being the first scientific historical account. Um, not that he was presenting a history of science, but um, he took a more scientific approach to it. Um, could you maybe explain what is meant by this term? Sure. So uh, the only other historian who'd written an extensive account of, of a war was Herodotus. And Herodotus preceded Thucydides by maybe 20 years. 
And Herodotus uses all kinds of mythic apparatus to explain historical events, intervention by the gods, the influence of dreams and oracles and apparitions. He lives in a world of uh, supernatural events. Thucydides never mentions the gods. He doesn't see any role for them in history. It's a purely human affair. So that really sets him apart as what we would call a modern or a scientific historian. He's also much more interested than Herodotus is in the question of cause. Why did this war have to start? What was the motivations? What caused people to make a decision at crucial turning points one way or the other? He analyzes these decision points in great depth by using speeches. Herodotus used speeches as a way to characterize and dramatize much the way a dramatist or a tragedian does. Thucydides uses them in the way that uh, an um, analyst picks apart a foreign policy decision. He uses a speech to lay out all the factors that influence an assembly or a, an audience in uh, voting one way or the other. So in that sense, too, he's a scientific writer. Yeah, I was going to bring up um, his, his speeches, so he might as well touch on that now too. Obviously, there's quite a number of them um, throughout his work, and they they do they're very important to uh, understanding what he's uh, writing about. Now, he himself though would say that they were, I guess, well, perhaps not not uh, word for word, but they were literary constructions rather than um, quotations of what were actually said um, at a lot of these meetings that took place and. Whatnot. So there's there's a chance that he probably may have access to of some of what was said at some of these places, but then I guess it's obvious that some of them he wouldn't have known what was being said. Um, so how much stock can we place in how accurate these speeches were? I guess not not um, word for word, but I guess what they were trying to represent, what these speeches were actually um, representing. Yes. So. What he says about the speeches is very hard to parse. He says something like, I couldn't always remember word for word what was said. So I sometimes had people saying what they ought to have said in that situation. People read that all kinds of different ways as to how much license he's giving himself to invent from whole cloth. It's clear that he was present at some of the speeches that he records, the funeral oration of Pericles, for instance, his most famous speech, and others he could not possibly have been at and probably had no information about what took place. He records a dialogue between Athenian envoys and the inhabitants of an island called Milos that he stores with no observers present, only the highest officials on both sides. Did he talk to someone who was there? Probably not. He seems to have invented that out of whole cloth. So I think there's a wide range in the histories of real content versus invention. Whether he's being truthful and whether he had real information or not, he's certainly using these speeches as a way to bring out all the complexities of the situations that these cities were facing. He often shows you speeches in an Athenian assembly where the city has to vote one way or the other, and he gives you all the factors that went into their vote by way of the speeches. Yeah, it seems to be not just rec um, recording events of his time, but I guess the themes and the, the feelings that were taking place, and that's, I guess, what you're seeing embodied in a lot of those speeches as well. Yes. And he's also interested in the problem of democratic rhetoric, the ways in which a speaker can twist or manipulate an audience in a democracy like Athens. And a lot of the rhetoricians, he, a lot of the speeches that he uh, presents are slippery and bending the truth and playing on emotion. He's interested in the problem of demagogy which as citizens of modern democracies we're very familiar with today. Yes. Um, 
that's another interesting point is, do you think he um, takes issue with the democracy itself? Um, I, like I reading through Horatius, I just every now and again you pick out a bit that he seems to be having a bit of a dig at how a democracy functions. Is Thucydides, I guess, critical of a democracy? Is he's critical of what happened after the death of Pericles? He's a great fan of Pericles, yep. and he says that in the time of Pericles, it wasn't. It was a democracy in name only, but really it was the rule by the first best man. And he seems to feel that that is the best kind of regime, is where there's a single executive who everybody is willing to listen to and mostly follow. Afterward, he says, the city was torn apart by the rivalry of different political factions and destroyed. And this, the expedition to Sicily was lost because of the infighting. And that, to him, is the condition of true democracy, pure democracy. Uh, and it's not a very happy picture. No. Um, and I guess going back to his comparison with Herodotus, because he seems to make a, compar well, a comparison to Herodotus himself without actually naming him, but he mm -hmm. doesn't feel the need to go back and rehash everything that um, happened during the Greek and Persian wars. So I oh, guess that's right. whether we look at that as a, being a tacit, um, he agreed that uh, fundamentally he what was recorded was um, fairly accurate. But we do see a major difference with um, Herodotus and Thucydides, where I guess Thucydides is, is, I think, more zoomed in, especially on events. He's zoomed in on the Peloponnesian War, but with, I guess, themes that are, are wider ranging. But whereas Herodotus talks about the Greek and Persian Wars, but he's interested in why East and West were fighting. And in doing that, we get a, a much larger, I guess, expansive, what we could call history. And I guess he was more reliant on what he was told. So he, I guess what, another big comparison with uh, Thucydides and Herodotus is Herodotus would tell us things that even if he didn't believe them, he recorded them and mm -hmm. um, would relay them to us. Whereas I guess Thucydides... He's going through and sifting out what he he trusts and believes, and that's the only picture that we do get. That's right. Now we we sort of touched on this at the beginning, but um, Thucydides' work uh, ends abruptly in um, 411 BC um, of the Peloponnesian War. I think it's what seven years um, before the war actually ended. Now, is there any evidence to suggest why his account ended um, at this point? Do you have any sort of personal feelings? Now, I know we, we, you said earlier that um, there is evidence that he survived to the end of the war. So what, um, what do you think leads to him not being able to complete his, his entire work? I don't think we can ever know. It, it seems most likely that he simply died before he was able to finish and before he even revised some of the work that he had written. The book, book eight, his last book, is obviously unrevised and doesn't have any speeches. So he probably meant to insert some, but never got around to it. So I think one, the, the best assumption I can make is that he started the history after the war was finished or was substantially composing it after the war was finished and died when he was only two thirds of the way into the war. The last sentence in the work trails off in mid-sentence. He, he didn't. It, it ends with an incomplete sentence. Yeah, it's almost almost like he um, went away, finished his his work for that day, or and then fate stepped in, and that was the end of Thucydides. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, we're not gonna we're not gonna know for sure. No, but we do know that there was no more than what we have. There are many works that are incomplete where we simply lost portions of them over time. But in the case of Thucydides, we know that this is the last point that he reached because Xenophon in the next generation picks up his history of Greek affairs at exactly the point where Thucydides leaves off. So he saw his task as completing the work of Thucydides. Yeah. And that's what I was just about to ask too, was um, who can we turn to, to get the last seven years of the war? And Xenophon would be our... our I guess, most complete source to, to turn to? Our only contemporary source yep. who's intact, who survives intact, 
Uh, there's also the work of Diodorus Siculus, but he's much later in time. He's a compiler who is working from sources that were already centuries old in his time. But Xenophon did see his task as picking up where Thucydides left off, and he gives us a history that goes from 411 all the way down to 362. So it's it's 50 years. Um, it's called the Hellenica. And you don't have to read very far into it before you realize that you're in the presence of a second-rate historian as compared with Thucydides, who's really first-rate. Yeah. And then he would also go on to um, write the Anabasis, his experience um, over in the Persian revolt, or the revolt that would take place over in Persia between the two feuding brothers. That's right. Yeah. So now I said at the beginning, Herodotus, oh, sorry, uh, Thucydides, uh, intended his work to be a possession for all time. Um, right. So how important is his work to us today in understanding history and then even other aspects of, of the world, I guess, political and even uh, militarily? I mean, we see the history of the Peloponnesian War is often taught at many military colleges around the world as well. That's right. Yes, at West Point, which is just down the river from where I am, uh, he's required reading for all military cadets. And I wish he were re required reading for all of my undergraduates as well. It's hard because there's so much geography and political background that you need to really fully appreciate his writing. But he's unquestionably the most important author from Greek antiquity for citizens of a modern-day democracy who are also uh, concerned about balance of power politics. His analysis of how power works increased and how it's used wisely or unwisely, these are all the same questions that we in the United States, certainly, and, and the entire uh, Western world have to face because we're still exercising power in, in the world in an attempt to keep a balance of power. And uh, Thucydides shows us how it failed in the case of Athens. And there's a lot to be learned from failure. And he wants us to learn those lessons. As you say, he calls it a possession for all time. So I guess, in your opinion, he's important for the, I guess, the budding historian to really get to grips with, to understand how history should be written in a way as well. I guess getting some foundational steps to how we should write history. Obviously, um, writing history develops over the ages, but with Thucydides, we see, I guess, the first scientific approach to actually trying to get it right as well. So it definitely proves as an important uh, foundation for anyone getting into history to really understand. Mm -hmm. And journalism. His reportage of the Sicilian expedition is the most brilliant military journalism that I, I know of in any period of time. He is just sensational at capturing details and capturing the experience of men at war. It's really astonishing. Mm. And I guess um, he's often used as a proxy for... Uh, well, he was used as a proxy for the uh, the Cold War as well for our more modern times. There have been a lot of comparisons in modern times um, to the or parallels drawn to the Peloponnesian War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the Cold War. You know that works in some ways, but not in others. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the term Thucydides' trap is in invoked today especially in discussions of the U.S. relationship with China. Thucydides' trap is a term that foreign policy analysts use for the phenomenon that a governing power, a hegemonic power, which is used to having pride of having first place in the hierarchy, is forced to confront a secondary power when it feels it's being overtaken by that power. That is, when a second power begins to overtake a first, there's inevitably going to be conflict, war. And that's called the Thucydides trap. It 
refers to the way in which Sparta felt that it had to go to war with Athens, but is often invoked today uh, to describe the relationship between the U.S. and China and the fear that that might lead to conflict. Yeah. Well, I think that pretty much gives us a good, I guess, introduction to Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War itself, and I guess some of the themes that he presents in there and how it uh, is represented today and how we look at it today. But um, before we do finish up, I want to focus on the reason I reached out to you in the first place, and that was a book that you were involved in, um, The Greek Histories, where you took um, a number of foundational Greek ancient writers, provide a bit of an introduction to who they were with um, selected readings as well, which I guess is, is a good way for a person new to Greek history to be introduced to a lot of these, um, these historians as well. Could you talk to a little bit about the motivations behind this this book and uh, the idea of it? Sure. It's, um, it's an anthology of four historians, Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon, and Plutarch. Uh, myself and Mary Lefkowitz put it together uh, because we felt those four authors have the most to offer to modern readers and are really indispensable to understanding the foundations of of the West. And um, we took large portions of Herodotus and Thucydides, less of the other two authors, and we supplied notes and maps and the kind of aids to understanding to allow first-time readers to really plug in. The names, you know, Greek names that are hard to pronounce, even for some who are experts, uh, they can be intimidating. But we've tried to get the reader past those blocks, those obstacles, and uh, allow them to really enjoy these narratives and and profit from them. They're the most sensational stories one can find. I mean, they're just endlessly compelling. And uh, Thucydides, most of all, is uh, an amazing read. So I I hope that readers who may feel that this stuff is, you know, too difficult, can get access to it through this volume. Yeah, absolutely. And is it safe to assume that you see Thucydides as being one of the most important ancient authors during these these times for understanding absolutely. history itself? Yeah. Absolutely. He's a grandmaster. I mean, he's he's playing chess while other writers are playing checkers. He's about the deepest thinker that one can find, certainly in antiquity, on matters of war and foreign policy. Yeah, um, I definitely look forward to getting to grips with him in more detail as we move forward in the series. Um, everyone in my series knows that I'm actually a fan of Herodotus as well, though I guess I think I've made it clear throughout my series that we need to be careful what we accept, though. There's a lot involved with the, the stories and understanding why they're being told in a certain way. and even understanding where he got his information from, that he's perhaps not just uh, telling us he, he, what he believes to be correct, but he's telling us what he's been told himself. But um, I, I definitely found that a very rich uh, experience to deal with Herodotus, but I'm um, definitely looking forward to getting into uh, Thucydides and seeing, I guess, all the little complexities that, that uh, come with that as well. Well, Thucydides himself was aware that Herodotus was going to be more popular than he was. Mm. And he says in the sentence where he calls his work a possession for all time, he also says, this was not written to win a prize in the moment. And there he seems to be referring to Herodotus, yeah. aware that uh, he was more of a crowd pleaser. Yep. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. No, no. It, like I said, it's, it's, it's entertaining. And I think, I don't know, I, I found... Um, the more, if you're willing to reread Herodotus a number of times, I, I find there's more that presents itself to you as well. Different ideas and different ways of looking at, at, at events and and uh, history as well. So it's a, Absolutely. a strange book in that way where it always seems to offer something different every time you read it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, once again, um, Professor Rom, thank you for uh, taking some time to come and talk to us today. Um, great, greatly appreciate uh, your willingness to share some of your knowledge with us. 
I definitely got a great deal out of today's talk and I'm sure uh, all my listeners will as well. Great. Thank you for having me. No worries. I think it's um, achieved its aims. Um, so that's that's great. And we'll be spending a lot more time in uh, this period as well. So it's great that we've got a bit of a, uh, an introduction and a bit, some context to what we're, we're getting ourselves into. So uh, once again, thank you for uh, taking the time. Happy to help. I hope everyone enjoyed the talk with Professor Rom. I greatly appreciated him taking the time to come on the show and talk with me. It's fantastic to see professors such as himself willing to come on and share their knowledge outside of the academic world. It was great to have been able to connect with him and have him provide an outline of the period we're about to delve into, while also giving us a basic understanding of who Thucydides was. I think it was also interesting to have gone into some of the themes and ideas of how Thucydides presents his work, as this will be crucial in understanding why he presents things the way he does at different points throughout his work. So I hope this has provided you all with a good basic understanding and context as we now begin to take on the period that Thucydides wrote about so extensively. Though, I also want to point out, like Herodotus, he won't be our only source as we move forward. Thucydides will provide a foundation, but we'll also be making use of a number of other ancient writers, such as Diodorus Siculus, Plutarch, Aristotle, and Xenophon for the later stages, just to name a few. I hope everyone looks forward to our next episode where we'll begin the journey into one of the biggest and most impactful events of the classical age. Remember to head over to the episode page over the Casting Through Ancient Greece website where you will find many links associated with Professor Rom, including the links to all the books he has authored and edited. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it over on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution is truly helping me grow the series. I would like to also give a special shout out to Ali Allman, for deciding to join the series over on Patreon. I greatly appreciate your decision to do so. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time for episode 51, Cracks Appear.